Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to 504 at 50. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the project director of the Southeast ADA Center. The 504 at 50 series is a special interview series created in recognition of the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. In this series, we speak with leaders of the disability rights movement who advance the cause of equal rights through their tireless work. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Muhammad Ali Lutfi, Director of Advocacy and Capacity Building at Global Initiative for Inclusive Information and Communication Technologies, G3ICT. Dr. Lutfi is a distinguished international disability advocate and he comes to G3ICT with a wealth of hands-on experience in advancing the rights of people with disabilities in his home country of Lebanon at a regional level and on a global level as Executive Director of Disabled Peoples International, or DPI. Dr. Lutfi is well-versed in the inner workings of the United Nation and works with government entities and private sector stakeholders involved in implementation of the digital accessibility provisions of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the CRPD. Dr. Lutfi, I want to welcome you. We also welcome today's host, Jonathan Martinez, Senior Director for Law and Policy at the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. We're pleased to have both of you with us. And Jonathan, I'll turn the interview over to you. Thank you so much, Barry. Sir, it's a, an honor and a pleasure to have you with us here today. As Barry just summarized, you have such an incredible, impressive, and influential history of, of advocating on behalf of people with disabilities around the world. I'd like to begin at the beginning. Can, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you became interested in this field and how you became a disability rights advocate? Thank you, Jonathan. Well, coming to the field of Disability rights advocacy was not, to be honest, my original choice. I've never expected that this is going to be my career all of my life. My background starts with when I lost my sight at the age of seven. I had to move to a school for the blind in my country, Lebanon. It was at the time when the country was undergoing civil war between the year 1975 and uh, 1990. The country was split. There were very few resources for persons with disabilities in general, including per blind persons, to go to special schools. At that time, mainstream schools were not open for persons with disabilities. We still had the model of welfare institutions. So I went to that school and I was, because I was sighted, because I was growing up with parents who were very loving and supportive. My dad is an artist. And at the age of seven, before I lost my sight, I was learning how to paint. I was very active among my peers and my family members. So becoming blind did not affect my motivations I tried to take advantage as much as I can of whatever the school was offering, despite its minimal uh, capacity, if I would say. So I tried to have access to whatever minimum reading resources, like Braille magazines. We didn't have computers back then, back home. 
But at the same time, I was aware of the misgivings or shortages or the problems that schools for the blind had, for example, lack of foreign language reading resources. Uh, we didn't have a library in English. We have very minimum, like maybe some couple of stories in Braille in English. That's it. I tried to replace that with alternative resources of knowledge, mainly radios. This is typical hobby among blind people to rely on radio back then. And I was very dependent on my cousins, for example, to, who would read to me. Or So until I reached high school, all of a sudden I found myself going or transferring to mainstream school because that was the model back then that at the high school level, blind students would be shifted or be transferred to mainstream schools. With no enough resources, we are not well-trained in sophisticated subjects such as mathematics and sciences, hard sciences, physics, chemistry, and biology. Even though I was very interested in mathematics uh, and physics, and I tried to convince the administration of the School for the Blind that I wanted to pursue the scientific track, they was very much against that, assuming or making the argument that as a blind person, I cannot study science and math. It's not that there is a lack of resources. They just made the argument that as a blind person, that's enough factor for you not to be able to study math and science. So I tried to find alternative subject matters that I would be interested in. I was interested in philosophy, and I was also interested in law. I thought that that would be a good alternative for math and sciences because it's logic dependent. So I went to the law school and I had a big dream to become a lawyer and then a judge. I studied four years at the College of Law at the Lebanese University in Beirut. was one of the renowned law schools in the region. We had lots of foreign students coming to the law school to study law in Lebanon. And when I graduated with the law degree, I tried to pursue a career in law to become an attorney. And for, to do that, I had to go for three-year training at some law firm. But unfortunately, none of the law firms in the country, even including the rich one, the most, the well-established ones, uh, refused to give me a chance to practice or to train as, a, as an attorney because of my disability. Well, it was very shocking, very devastating moment at that time. But in parallel, I have to say that in parallel to my law school time, I, I decided to get involved with the disability movement in the country. At that time, the disability movement started to advocate for the disability rights law. And I was part of this campaign. I joined several committees. I was enrolled in the organization of the blind and they made an exception for me to enroll me despite my age. At that time, they allowed 20-year-old minimum as an age for those who would like to enroll in the organization. I was still 19, but they gave me the chance to enroll. And I you know, climbed the ladder of leadership at the organization. I was elected as a board member. Then I was nominated to chair the youth committee at the World Blind Union because the organization I joined was the representative of WBU in Lebanon. And when I realized that I cannot become a lawyer, 
I decided to continue a career in advocacy and I found a job at the World Bank. Uh, they wanted to hire a focal point on youth with disabilities and development. I applied after I attended a meeting in Paris organized by the World Bank called the International Conference on Youth, Peace and Development. And I knew about the opening. I applied without any expectation that I would get the job. And all of a sudden, I started to go from one stage to another, doing interviews, writing essays, filling applications, until I all of a sudden received the positively or pleasantly shocking news that the bank decided to hire me. And I, all of a sudden, I found myself in Washington, D.C. on March 6, 2004. I worked there for two years. That was the, the term of my job. Moved back to Lebanon. I worked as a national program director for the Lebanese Physical Handicap Union for a year and a half. I was responsible for a number of programs and projects, including political participation, human rights leadership for youth with disabilities, emergency and relief operations, inclusive budgeting for disability on disability, or we just we call it like alternative budget or inclusive budgets. In the meantime, I also I applied for scholarship, Fulbright scholarship, and I was awarded the scholarship in 2007. I moved back to the United States. I went to American University, studied a master's degree in international development, and I applied for a PhD. And I got admitted in a PhD program with full scholarship. While I was doing my PhD in the, during the summers. I would go back to Lebanon to collect data for my dissertation project, which is to study the contexts of disability services in Lebanon and the influence of these services on offering opportunities for persons with disabilities to inclusion. And I did a comparative study between the role of welfare institutions and grassroots disability rights organizations in this field of inclusion. So to do so, I did some consultancies with the Lebanese Physical Handicap Union, and I was asked by the union to represent them as a campaign coordinator for the global campaign on World Bank safeguards and disability. It was a campaign that aimed at ensuring that World Bank safeguards include language on disability inclusion, so World Bank programs would become sensitive to needs persons with disabilities. I led that campaign for four years. Then again, I was asked to help the organization form the Arab Regional Office of Disabled Peoples International. So I did so. I was asked to work as an interim executive director, and we registered the, off the regional office as an independent regional organization called the Arab Forum for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And I was still in the United States after I did my field research on, in, for my PhD. I moved back to New York, where I live down with my partner. And because of that, DPI asked me to be their representative at the United Nations, where I worked closely with a large array of international organizations of persons with disabilities. And I met G3ICT, which I will talk about in a bit later. And I was asked recently, like uh, before, just before the pandemic, to co-chair the stakeholder group of persons with disabilities on sustainable development at the United Nations. And this is where I am and who I am and where I come from. 
One of the things that you said that really struck me was how you were not allowed to train as an attorney. In the States, we sometimes like to think that we're advanced. And yet the Burton Blatt Institute, where I work, did a study that found that many attorneys with disabilities and other attorneys who are parts of marginalized communities feel excluded from the profession in ways large and small. My question, sir, is as you lived and worked here in the States, as well as back in other areas, how do you see the development, uh, the similarities, the differences between the way that, for example, Lebanon and the U.S. protect the human and civil rights of people with disabilities? Well, I have to say that this is an unfair question. Unfair to the United States and unfair to Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon is a small country that's been undergoing lots of uh, security problems, political fragility and instabilities. We were undergoing a 15-year civil war, then the Israeli occupation of the South and different wars with Israel and so on and so forth. So, And we have a lot of corruption, as you all here in the news nowadays, Lebanon is a failing state due to the prevailing corruption of politicians. And it's a sectarian country. Everything has to be in the hands of the religious institutions in the country. Because of that, even though Lebanon is one of the most uh, signatory of international human rights treaties in the Arab region, at least, none of these treaties have been translated or materialized on the ground, including the disability rights law. Just to let you know that Lebanon is still not officially CRPD state party. It's not, it hasn't officially signed the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. It's one of the last few countries that have not signed the convention. So because of that, services are very much poor uh, for persons with disabilities in in Lebanon, despite that the fact that uh, the disability rights law of the year 2000, the law has a number of 220 over 2000, it recognizes the rights of persons with disabilities to a number of things, including employment, education, healthcare, social security, and so on and so forth, but none of these rights have been fulfilled on the ground. Persons with disabilities are still excluded from uh, employment opportunities. There are some major efforts or, and initiatives, including, for example, the Lebanese Physical Handicapped Union, and now that changed its name to Lebanese Union of Persons with Physical Disabilities. They tried to launch and create a model on disability employment, uh, working with private sector companies, but still the majority of persons with disabilities are without any job. Nothing comes from the government, nothing, no, no social security programs. Nowadays, there is an ongoing, dis- there's a discussion happening with the International Labor Organization, with UNICEF, uh, including representatives of organizations of persons with disabilities on the reform of social protection programs, ensuring the, dis- the inclusion of persons with disabilities. But other than that, nothing, there's nothing being offered for persons with disabilities as social security opportunities, um, whether uh, cash flow, transfers, any subsidies of any services like hospitals, schools, education, vocational training, and so on and so forth. While I agree with you that 
persons with disabilities still find themselves excluded in certain sectors in the United States, with no doubt, the level of services is way better than what it is in Lebanon. When I came to the United States, first of all, to see that there are universities that are open for persons with disabilities with the availability of disability services, that was tremendous for me. When I went to the law school in Lebanon, I had no disability support services at the school. I had to seek support from the organization that I joined, the Organization of the Blind. They used to record books on tapes for me, just to let you know that the irony that I am working now for an international organization that deals with digital accessibility, I had no chance to learn the computer until I was 25 years old. I never had a chance to touch a computer, to work on a computer until I was 25 years old. And that was after I graduated from the law school. Having access to digital books or braille books was impossible in Lebanon. One of the schools for the blind in Lebanon has a library, but nobody uses it. There is a small library with braille books, novels, and some subjects, but nobody uses it. The schools for the blind in Lebanon do not encourage their students to read. The schools for the blind in Lebanon do not work on ensuring, on diversifying sources of reading and knowledge for their students. Blind people had to learn, like at least my cohort, my generation, we had to learn computer on our own. Plus, like there is a problem of infrastructure, internet connection is very weak. We have no electricity to use our computer 24 seven. We don't have enough support, technical support. Well, like we have, we have these things here. We have great internet. We have technical support for computers, for screen readers. We have access to different screen readers. Screen readers now are available in Lebanon, but based on efforts of blind people themselves. But still, there is no technical support that they can get if like, they have a problem with their screen reader. They have to rely on their own, on other friends who are perhaps experts on how to fix a problem with the screen reader, but there is nothing systematized. There are no companies that would help offer that help. Accessibility, transportation. When I lived in DC, I was able to travel with my cane anywhere I wanted. I had metro access where I used to ride the bus, the train, the metro, subway, very easily with no cost. Streets have sidewalks, curb cuts, audio pedestrian signs are not everywhere, that's true, but at least we receive good mobility training in the United States where we can, we're able to travel on our own. Airlines, companies offer support for escort services for persons with disabilities. I see people working here. I see people working in governments. I know blind people who studied law here in the United States. Perhaps they could not work as lawyers, but they were able to find a job in the government. I know blind person who studied law and he became a judge assistant in Maryland. We cannot have that in Lebanon. We cannot have that. I tried to convince one of my professors who was a judge. Later, he became a minister. I tried to talk to him to help me get into the 
to become a judge, to go to the school that trained judges. He said, Muhammad, I mean, there is a matter of secrecy in, in the work of litigations and uh, li lawsuits. And we cannot hire somebody else to read for you. You have to read that on your own. And unfortunately, we cannot offer you the support you need to read these documents. And you know, you studied law, Jonathan. You teach law and you know how much reading we have to do in the profession of law. So it's no, I cannot compare. It's, it's unfair for the two countries, unfortunately, to, to compare. Now, do we still have gaps here in the United States? Do all schools, all mainstream schools in all states offer quality education for persons with disabilities? This is something else. But at least persons with disabilities are allowed to go to mainstream schools and they can find jobs. I know there is, there are maybe, there is a number of persons with disabilities who are still unemployed, but comparatively speaking, there is a much higher, higher rate of employment of persons with disabilities in the United States than Lebanon. So I did my PhD in, in the United States for 10 years. It was struggle. It was a big struggle because I had to fight a lot for my rights at the school to convince the disability support service office that I need a whole book to be scanned, not one passage, to convince my professors that I need more help to read material. But at the end of the day, it worked out. I got the services I need. And perhaps if I was trained better in computer, I may have had a better experience. Thank you for that, sir. Especially thank you for painting a, a really vivid and somewhat scary picture of what it was like for you. I'd like to seg to what you've done and, and what you're currently doing to make things better for people with disabilities. You mentioned your work with Disabled Peoples International, with the Arab Forum for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and especially the Lebanese Union, Persons with Physical Disabilities. Can you give us a, a little background on some of the work that you did and some of the changes you were able to make through that work? Of course, everything I've done, I haven't done it on my own. I worked with a lot of people. I have lots of colleagues who were part of this process. I can start with the World Bank. Uh, when I worked at the World Bank, I established a large network of organizations of youth with disabilities uh, in the United States and around the world who became aware of the work of the World Bank. The World Bank became more accepting of engaging persons with disabilities, youth with disabilities in its its programs. We helped establishment of what we called back then info shops, information shops at country offices of the World Bank and around the world in Africa, particularly where we provided assistive technology. So especially blind people can come to these info shops and uh, read about the World Bank, have access to the material, reports, and so on and so forth. Also, we advocated for adopting standards of built environment accessibility in World Bank offices in different countries, also to make sure that World Bank projects, for example, especially those that deal with building schools or these schools have to be compliant with standards of accessibility back then. 
When I moved back to Lebanon, I worked at the Lebanese Physical Handicapped Union back then. We led, or I was the director of the project that became a model for to be pursued by many other organizations later on, which is about inclusive budget advocacy. Uh, we worked closely with civil society organizations, with private sector companies, with economists and uh, budget experts advocating the government back then on how to make its budget accessible. Uh, inclusive and accessible, yeah, and, and accessible for persons with disabilities and other marginalized groups. Uh, the way how we worked back then is that we did not look at issues of persons with disabilities in silos. Issues of persons with disabilities are interconnected with other marginalized groups. We cannot work on issues of persons with disabilities forgetting about women or forgetting about children. We cannot do that. So that was one of the, you know, our approach um, to cross-cutting issues with other marginalized groups. We trained leaders of local authorities in the country on issues of inclusion and disability rights. We created a huge vibe among civil society organizations who became more understanding and welcoming persons with disabilities and their rights showing that through their programs and activities, making sure that persons with disabilities are part of their activities. Now, the other campaign I led, which is the global campaign of the, on World Bank Safeguards and Disability, was a very successful campaign. We generated lots of attention globally and regionally and on, in different regions. Lots of international organizations became interested in World Bank advocacy, and they became this is why now we, nowadays the World Bank has what's called the GLADNET. GLADNET is a, is a network of donors who set the climate of disability funding around the world. And that's because of the work that we have done. The Arab region is very complex because it's one, it's still, despite all of the resources that the region has, there are very wealthy countries, but unfortunately, the Arab region is still one of the least developed regions in the world when it comes to disability rights. Why? Because there is so much control by governments. There is a prevailing power of welfare institutions that still, even though they claim that they are working on inclusion of persons with disabilities, but unfortunately, this inclusion is still framed with the language of charity, you know, I don't see it as real inclusion. It's uh, just words, nothing else. So we created this forum to enhance the representation, the proper representation of persons with disabilities on national, regional, and global level. We established good connection with different regional offices of the United Nations and other agencies like ILO, UNICEF, the United Nations Higher Commission on Human Rights. Before the pandemic, we used to bring conference of states parties to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, COSP, in every June, every year in the United Nations here in, in New York. Now, having that said, I mean, separately from the Arab region, my participation as a co-chair of the Stakeholder Group of Persons with Disabilities on Sustainable Development. We are now seeing more recognition by the United Nations 
to the rights of persons with disabilities. Civil society organizations who are participating in, in United Nations activities, whether during, particularly during the high-level political forum on sustainable development, HLPF, that takes place every July at the United Nations in New York, we see more recognition of disability issues within the discussions that take place during that forum. We succeeded to bring large legations to the extent that representatives of other civil society organizations became very jealous and became very annoyed. Like, why do we see lots of persons with disabilities here? Where are they coming from? Why can't have more of our constituencies coming to this this conference? I mean, we tell them, well, it's your problem, not our problem. We have succeeded to make this happen. We work closely with International Disability Alliance, uh, which which serves as, as a secretariat of the stakeholder group. And they've been very supportive of the work of the group and sponsoring the participation of persons with disabilities in the work that we do. We started a new era of discourse on disability and development where now we, you hear people talk about disability data, you hear people talking about disability rights and climate change, you hear people talk about financing for development and disability. We've been participating in many panel discussions on a number, on many macro topics, such as climate change, data, technology, where we present on disability rights in that field. I participated in reviewing the toolkit on disability data. The stakeholder group of persons with disabilities published last year. We issued a big report on experiences of persons with disabilities during the time of COVID-19 pandemic. A number of countries, Nigeria, Bangladesh, Bolivia, and other countries. Now, I want to talk about G3ICT. I joined G3ICT a year and a half ago. And the reason why G3ICT hired me is because they wanted a person who has the experience, the experience and the background to help the organization establish effective and better connection with the disability movement. So they needed sort of like a face of a person with disability who would represent G3ICT with these groups. So I was hired by G3ICT because of that. And uh, through my work at G3ICT, uh, we have three programs. I am now responsible for three programs. The first program is a scholarship program for leaders with disabilities or persons with disabilities who are playing a leadership role in the area of digital accessibility. The scholarship allows these people to obtain a certificate we call the Certificate for Professional Accessibility Core Competency. It's a program, it's a certification that we are managing in partnership with Princeton University in the United States. The scholarship allows these to have free access to body of knowledge to prepare for the exam that will allow them to get the certificate. The priority is given to persons with disabilities coming from developing countries because we see that despite all of the talk today about digital accessibility, organizations of persons with disabilities, especially those that are based in developing countries, are the least knowledgeable and engaged 
in the field of digital accessibility. Uh, the knowledge of digital accessibility in these countries is still limited to wheelchairs, white canes, braille books, uh, talking books, and so on and so forth, nothing beyond that. Few people are familiar or aware of computers. They know how to use computers, but still on a very limited scale. So we are hoping that with persons with disabilities would gain better knowledge on digital accessibility and an accessibility in general and become better advocate. And to do that, we will be offering a course on digital accessibility for persons with disabilities and for the public, whoever is interested in digital accessibility can take this course. Of course, it's going to be free for the scholarship awardees or recipients. And this course will offer knowledge and lectures on different digital accessibility related issues based on the outcomes of G3ICT Digital Accessibility Right Education Index. G3ICT issues this index every two years or three years, evaluating the level of commitment, implementation, capacity, and outcomes of government's policies and programs on digital accessibility. The last one we did was in 2020. We ran the evaluation for 137 countries. 93% of them are CRPD state parties. And we worked on this with a number of international organizations, including Disabled Peoples International and other organizations as well. The last program I want to talk about is the Global Network of Digital Accessibility Champions. It's going to consist of the DARE Academy graduates, those who are going to receive their uh, CPAC certification based on the scholarship we, I just talked about. And this network will serve as a platform for uh, knowledge sharing and for enhancing and supporting efforts of advocacy in the field of digital accessibilities in developing countries, mainly. And, you know, G3IC has as a program. We have the, our annual M Enabling Summit conference every year. We uh, bring people, companies who are like, we bring all representatives of technology companies together to share their, you know, to talk about their products, to talk about the recent developments in the field of digital accessibility and so on and so forth. One thing that I also participated in was through the, the Institute of Disability and Public Policy. I was their senior uh, doctoral fellow, and uh, I represented them at the Habitat 3 on Urban Development. It was a big summit that was held in Ecuador in the year 2016. And we came as a result of long time of negotiation and advocacy at the United Nations to ensure the inclusion of persons with disabilities in urban development and the new urban development agenda. That's one of the things that we also did in partnership with a number of other organizations like World Enabled, Victor Pineda Foundation, and so on and so forth. Thank you for filling us in on your work with G3ICT. That was going to be my next question. Sir, this interview series is all about the last 50 years, the Rehabilitation Act at 50 years old. So given your work around the world and in the U.S., what would you say was the, the greatest improvement in human and civil rights for people with disabilities in the last 50 years? There's no doubt that persons with disabilities are 
more and better recognized today by all sectors, by international organizations, by the United Nations. We have the CRPD, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, that was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in, 20, in 2006. It's the first human rights convention of the 21st century. It's the first human rights treaty on disability. It's the treaty that has established the legal aspect of disability rights. Countries who are state members or state parties of the convention are obligated to adopt new laws and policies and programs that are in compliance with the CRPD uh, language and uh, standards. Other organizations around the world, like ISO, the International Standards Organization, also launched a series of standards on technology. World Wide Web Consortium also created a, a whole lot of standards uh, for ensuring the accessibility of websites. So there is more recognition of persons with disabilities and their needs nowadays. That's thanks to the efforts of disability movement, the advocacy efforts of organizations of persons with disabilities, of all disabilities. You know, disability is not one thing. We have many types of disabilities. These types of disabilities are becoming more recognized. The definition of disability is becoming more and more variant and diversified. You know, we sense commitment by governments to ensure that persons with disabilities have are equally recognized when it comes to education, employment, uh, healthcare, social security. Now, is this materializing really on the ground? I mean, there is a lot of things to be done and we can talk more about it. Thanks to technology, technology now is playing a massive role, enhancing opportunities of inclusion for persons with disabilities. Without technology, persons with disabilities were not to be able to have access to, to education and employment. Technology helped, especially blind people like myself. I mean, if I cannot use technology, I would have not been able to be sitting here with you today talking via Zoom uh, using our computers. So progress that has taken place in many fields, especially technology, has served the enhancement and or the increasing recognition of the rights of persons with disabilities by many sectors. Sir, talking about advances in the last 50 years also lets us highlight how far we still have to go. So if there was a problem or a situation that, that you could solve or change just by fiat with a blink of, of your eyes or a wave of your hand that would improve access, improve opportunities or rights for people with disabilities, what would it be? Systemization of inclusion. What I mean by this is I still see that efforts of international organizations towards disability inclusion is still on ad hoc basis. Every now and then you still see that programs of international organizations are still lacking the aspect of inclusion of persons with, with disabilities. 
that's due to the level of knowledge and awareness that people who work at these organizations have about disability and why disability is relevant to issues of to macro issues like climate change, fair trade, security. We still see major gaps on this level. If I have the power to change, I would make it obligatory for international organizations, especially that those that work in the field of development, that they have to adopt policies on inclusion, standards on inclusion of persons with disabilities, not in necessarily or only with regard to standalone programs supporting rights of persons with disabilities, but throughout their programs, throughout the repertoire of programs and initiatives that are taking place everywhere and on all levels and in every single sector. This is something that I would really like to see. The other thing I would like to say that despite all of the progress in terms of adopting the language of inclusion of persons with disabilities, in many countries, especially in the global south, welfare institutions are still powerful. And they are fooling the world by claiming that they are adopting programs to promote the inclusion of persons with disabilities. It's a big lie because these institutions, I can claim, I can say it very openly and freely, that welfare institutions cannot or would not see in inclusion as something beneficial to them, meaning Welfare institutions want to keep controlling lives of persons with disabilities because it's a source to generate fund for its programs. I would definitely work on the demolishing of welfare institutions or what we call the institutionalization of disability. That's a big problem that we are still facing in the world that's hindering big time the progress on fulfilling rights of persons with disabilities and recognizing their inclusion. The other issue is the ongoing wars in the world are increasing numbers of persons with disabilities, victims, casualties. There is a big role of ongoing conflicts around the world in the field of causing suffering of persons with disabilities and their families. This is something that we need to think of very deeply. Unfortunately, we see countries sponsoring wars instead of sponsoring inclusion or sponsoring peace. We need to see more openness of persons with disabilities in developing countries to engage more and more and more in the field of development. Unfortunately, Many organizations of persons with disabilities in developing countries do not see the value of engaging in the field of development. They don't see the value of partnering with civil society organizations, with other stakeholders in their country. They don't see the value. All what they want is to provide services, which is also another form of charity work, welfare operations. This is still a big challenge for improving lives of persons with disabilities and ensuring their inclusion. I personally very much appreciate your your point of view and your suggestions for ways that we can do things better. And 
with that, I'm just going to thank you again for sharing your time and your expertise with us. And I'm going to turn it back over to Barrett. Thank you, Jonathan and Dr. Lutfi. Listeners, our guest for this conversation has been Dr. Muhammad Ali Lutfi, Director for Advocacy and Capacity Building at G3ICT. Listeners, you can access this interview and all our 504 at 50 interviews at section 504 at 50.org. The 504 at 50 series is produced by the Southeast ADA Center, Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and in collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Rehabilitation Research and Training Center. Again, thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you at our next interview. Thank you.